Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A significant warning has been issued about the 2024 election. We'll get to that. And Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is going to drop by to talk about the Kavanaugh scheme and the capture of the Supreme Court. Also, we've got the story of kids rising up to save banned books by or about people like Rosa Parks, Maya Angelou, and Martin Luther King. So we've got a lot that we're going to be covering today, as well as, you know, just other kind of random news. So John Eastman, this is how close we came, the Eastman memo. Those of you who are regular viewers of this program or listeners of this program know that or may probably remember that back well over a year ago, in fact, I think it was almost two years ago, I did a deep dive into the Hayes-Tilden election of 1876 when Rutherford B. Hayes went up against Sam Tilden. Hayes was the Republican, Tilden was the Democrat. Tilden actually won more votes, popular votes, and Tilden actually won more electoral college votes, so he should have become president. But the problem was that there were four states, three southern states, Louisiana and two others. I forget which ones they were. I believe it was Louisiana, Georgia, and Alabama, but I could be wrong. But anyhow, three southern states and Oregon. And that these four states submitted two sets of electoral votes. There was the official set that the, that the uh, people who controlled the state submitted and said this is the actual result of the election. And then there was also another, quote, official set, although it didn't come through the state, it came through the state legislatures from the opposition, shall we say, in those state legislatures, um, who were saying in the southern states, they were saying, we're still occupied by the northern army of, of, of you know, from the war of northern aggression. And therefore, uh, we're submitting two slates of electors. And in Oregon, uh, we were occupied by the Ku Klux Klan at the time. And so they submitted their own slate separate from the one that the state submitted. So the bottom line was that the election got thrown to the House of Representatives under the 12th Amendment. And in the House of Representatives, the House of Representatives came up, you know, they put together a committee to decide what to do. And what they decided to do ultimately was stab African-Americans in the back and make the guy who lost both the electoral vote and the popular vote, Hayes, make him president. 
And in exchange for that, they would end Reconstruction. That was the deal. The election of 1876, it was also the death of Reconstruction. And I did a deep dive into that. I, I had not known that much about it, but I read some just extraordinary histories of that. And I wrote a long piece for, for you know, that uh, probably one of these days I should repost over at Hartman Report. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that there's a transcript of it over at TomHartman.com. And it got published on Salon and, and Raw Story and Alternate and whatnot about how the Republicans might be thinking about doing the exact same thing trying to throw the election to the House of Representatives. And nobody took me seriously. I mean, I had Democratic politicians on this show. I had Tom Perez on this show. And I laid it out for him, and I said, he was, ran the DNC, and I said, what do you think? What are you going to do about it? And he said, oh, I don't, you know, it's, 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 yeah, we're looking into it. Like, you know, kind of brush me off, right? Well, now comes out this memo, this John Eastman memo that was in the White House that was given to Mike Pence. It says, number one, VP Pence, should begin to open the count and ballot starting with Alabama. When he gets to Arizona, he announces that he has multiple slates of electors, and so he's going to defer a decision. At the end, he announces that because of the ongoing disputes in seven states, he, he is going to throw this to the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives, the vote shall be taken by the states. There are 26 states that are Republican-controlled in the House, compared to 24 that are democratically controlled. And he said to block the Senate from doing anything about it, Ted Cruz or Rand Paul should demand normal rules of order, in other words, the filibuster, and poof, Donald Trump gets to be president. I have been saying for more than two years that this is the strategy that the Republicans were planning on using for 2024, and now we have the proof. We actually have the memo from within the White House that this, that this Republican lawyer, John Eastman, came up with. And Mike Pence wanted to do it. He called Dan Quayle and, you know, there's got to be a way I can do this. And Dan Quayle was like, no, don't even think about it. Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Good. Tom? Yeah, it seems to me Democratic Party don't want to take no for an answer. No, these, some a lot of these Republicans are not going to work with you. No, they're not going to going to um, try to help you get health care or even with this um, three point five trillion dollar bill. I think they're waiting for them in the Senate to see if they can get ten Republicans to go along with them. I'm like, when are we going to understand that we're dealing with the opposition? These people are opposed to anything that's going to make Biden look good and them look bad as, uh, as the way they say. Yeah. And until we realize what we, you know, what we up against or even accept it, I don't know if we have the, the guts to push back against them the way they push back against us. Yeah. Because they have no, no, there's no floor for these people. You know, they don't, they don't care what they have to do to get what they want. And I'm waiting for one of them to come out and say, you know what, let's just block blacks from voting, period. You know, they yeah. come push a bill up like that. And then what are we going to do? That's the question I have. What are we going to do if they come out with a bill saying, stop blacks from voting, stop Spanish people from voting? What are we going to do about that? Because well, they're damn close to it down in Georgia exactly. right now where they're, where they're, they're firing the local uh, mostly black election workers and the people who run the elections in Fulton County in Atlanta, 
um, and replacing them with the you know white Republican overseers, essentially. Uh, I, I don't know what we're going to do, but we definitely have to recognize that we're up against a, a, a force of people, a, a set of people in this country that's willing to do whatever they can or want to yeah. get what they want. Yeah, we got a lot of work to do, Tyrone. We've got a big project yes. ahead of us. And, and uh, you know, it, what's amazing, I was thinking when you were describing this, how back uh, prior to the late or prior to the early 90s when the Soviet Union fell, the way that Republicans used to justify their opposition to pretty, basically anything Democrats did, including stuff like, you know, Medicare, is they would say, oh, you're, you're moving in the direction of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, it's communism, it's socialism. Or they would come right out and accuse Democrats of being in bed with, with the Russian communists, you know, the Soviet communists. You know, oh, you're doing the business of the Soviet Union. If you oppose the Vietnam War, you must, you know, like that, right? And, I think uh, they, they use our compassion against us. Well, yeah, but, but, but yeah. Since, the, since, the, since the Soviet Union fell, you know, they still yell that we're socialists and things like that. Yes. But it's kind of falling on deaf ears. But I think the, the tables have turned, and Democrats would have every justification in saying to uh, you know, Republicans when they're promoting their, their uh, don't get vaccinated stuff and things like that, Oh, you're just doing, you know, uh, Putin's work for him, or you're just doing Xi's work for him, or you're just you're just helping, you know, countries that that hate America, or the you know the the, the Saudis who who don't like American democracy. You're just doing their work, but you know, Democrats are just like you know they want to be just no. honest they, they and careful and thoughtful and you know. Yes, they you don't even to, say that our president said that the president of China have us covered. Yeah. When he says she or she got everything under control. Yeah. Everything yeah. is wonderful. This, no. this, this I'm completely I'm completely with you, Tyrone. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, the Democrats learn to need to learn to take names and kick ass. Tyrone, yeah. thank you for the call. Andy in Depew, New York. Hey Andy, what's up? Hey, I, this is more like a public service announcement. It goes into voter suppression and whatnot, but it's about dark money, Sheldon Whitehouse a few days ago. He's got something called the scheme. I'm up to part seven right now. They're 15 to 25 minutes. It's like a mini course, and it is, he's reading it into the record on the Senate floor. It right. is required viewing. It's, it's really, really good. It is breathtaking stuff, and he's going to be on this program talking about it. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Children well, one final thing. I grew up in East Lansing while you were there. Cool. Yeah, it's yeah. a great town. Yeah, in the 70s it grew up. Yeah, all right. Yeah, it's a great lot. town. Andy, thanks a lot for the call. And uh, the actual plan to overthrow the United States on 1-6, on Jan 6, January 6. Eventually that's going to become, you know, we're going to come up with a, a collectively accepted uh, abbreviation, like 9-11, you know, it'll, it'll be Jan 6 or January 6. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Because it is, you know, it's like like the Alamo or Shiloh or whatever. It's, it's, it's one of those kind of pivot points in history. Sheldon Whitehouse is up next, hopefully. We'll see. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is uh, the guy that I thought should be our attorney general. <laughs> and he's doing an, an amazing course, basically, a, a, an American government course and, and history course that you can find over on YouTube. He's been doing it, you know, as reading it into the 
into the record in, in the U.S. Senate. Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island. Sen Whitehouse is his Twitter handle. The website, of course, whitehouse.senate.gov. Senator Whitehouse, welcome back to the program. It's been, a, it's been quite a while. You did a, a deep dive in one of your scheme exposés of Brett Kavanaugh. And I think that now that we are, you know, there, there have been some conversations about uh, revisiting the things that happened during the Trump administration, particularly like FBI investigations. Bring us up to speed on what's the, what the story is with Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh right now. So things looked pretty hinky when the FBI investigation was taking place into the allegations made by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. And in the midst of that stampede, a number of us asked a bunch of questions about what the FBI investigation had actually amounted to. And then we went through a very frustrating period during the Trump administration when we couldn't get a single answer out of Chris Wray and the FBI and the Department of Justice. And at the same time, we were watching the FBI and Chris Wray and the Department of Justice feed information through a fast lane to our Republican colleagues in the Trump-Russia investigation. So clearly they were capable of getting us the information if they'd wanted to, and they were being very selective. So when President Biden got elected and Attorney General Garland came in, we put new, renewed pressure on for answers. And this time we didn't get blown off, uh, but we got what I would call a smidgen of an answer which did one important thing. It confirmed that the tip line that they had set up when their effort to fend off any and all information about Brett Kavanaugh was not going to be sustainable. They had to let some information in. So they let it in through a tip line. And what they've admitted is that they did not follow FBI tip line procedures. In fact, they took all the information that came through the tip line and ran it over to Don McGahn, at the White House Counsel's Office, where, of course, it did not get investigation. And, uh, you know, that was the end of that. It was basically a tip dump, not a tip line. And um, so now we need to press further to figure out, you know, what they did do and what they didn't do. Their other argument, if you don't mind me going on for one second longer, is Please that feel free. they um, were actually following FBI procedures when they did all this stuff. And what they meant by that was that when the FBI is doing a background investigation, it's the political tool of the White House and does what the White House tells it, and that's what they mean by the way of procedure. Hmm. So what they're saying is that we were following the procedure of not following our procedure. But if you dig behind that, you know, the FBI is a very procedure-run institution, and I am confident that they have procedures for how you run background investigations, because they do this all the time. So we want to dig through those procedures, because there's every reason to believe that they didn't follow those procedures either. I think this was the first time in the history of FBI background investigations where the White House took operational control over an FBI background investigation and created a fake one to give the appearance of an investigation without actually doing real investigating. Right, which raises a whole bunch of questions, and I don't know if in the the roughly seven minutes we've got left we can get to them all, but number one, why is Chris Ray still running the FBI if this is the story? Number two, will there be a thorough investigation of Mr. Kavanaugh? Number three, could that lead to a possible impeachment of him from the Supreme Court? As a starting point, let's just begin with those. 
Number one, because I don't appoint the FBI director. Right. Number two, I think that the focus of the investigation in the first instance need to be on, on the mischief that the FBI got up to mm-hmm. and the direction that they got from the White House about this and how y- unusual and perhaps even unique this was in the annals of the uh, FBI. And once we've gotten a really good, clear understanding of how and why the FBI took a dive the way it did, um, then we can make you know further decisions. But that's the touch point that comes up next, is to understand what the FBI did and why they did it and how they violated their own procedures. Do you know yet, does Congress yet know, I mean, you're, you're part of the committee that has oversight for this, who paid off the several hundred thousand dollars of debt that Brett Kavanaugh had when he was uh, nominated for the Supreme Court that, uh, that some suggest was gambling debt. He said it had to do with sports tickets, I guess. Does anybody know we, where this money came from? Nope. nope, we still do not know that. Part of the signaling out of this whole episode of the power of the dark money forces that were pushing Kavanaugh so hard onto the court is that basic questions like, where did that debt go, didn't get properly or clearly answered, and the Republicans controlling the Judiciary Committee were happy with um, delayed and half-baked and incomplete answers that leave this a question to this moment that we have to talk about still now. Which, which raises the, the question, what was so important about Brett Kavanaugh? And, you know, I mean, why would they fight so hard for him when, when, when they had Robert Bork, you know, back during the Reagan era, when it became obvious that he was going to be problematic, they just dropped him and replaced him with, I think, Scalia. I mean, I, I may be wrong, but they, they replaced him with another right-wing justice. I mean, it's not like there's a shortage of them. Yeah, but um, Kavanaugh had a um, unique angle on all of this. He had run judicial nominations in the Bush White House. He knew Leonard Leo, who's the sort of central spider in the web. The head of the Federalist Society. Organizations. He was, I think, the vice president of the Federalist Society, but he was the head of the court capture operation that was housed within the Federalist Society. And he had always been the link for the big right-wing donors who sought control over the judicial process. So when Trump said the Federalist Society is where I'm going to go to get my judges, he was the man at the turnstile who controlled who got to be a judge. And Kavanaugh knew him, and he also knew what the big donors wanted because he'd played in that space. So he'd spent his time on the uh, D.C. Circuit auditioning on all the key issues that the big donors would be excited by. And then, of course, he'd done, I think, 27 different Federalist Society visits as he auditioned through that organization. you might be interested to know, he wasn't even on the original Federalist Society list of judges. Right. He auditioned himself entirely around that list until the top of the pile. So the, the donor group that is behind this court capture operation was particularly infatuated with Brett Kavanaugh. That's fascinating. And there were some indications that when he was working in the Bush White House, that he was involved with the torture memos and stuff like that? Did we, did we ever learn that if that was or was not the case? What we got out of his White House days was mostly huge stacks of paper that were blank <laughs> and that were stamped constitutional privilege on them. Is there such they a didn't thing? Even have, 
Well, that's it. They didn't even have the gall to say executive privilege because they knew it had neither met the legal nor process requirements for an executive privilege assertion. So they just stamped blank pages constitutional privilege, sent them in by the ream, and knew perfectly well that the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee were going to turn a blind eye to all of that and let them let it stand. Right. So back to a question I, I think I asked earlier that you know, is this going to be, I realize you're trying to get answers from the FBI, but a formal investigation that may lead to even an impeachment investigation, do you, do you consider that a possibility or is that something that it's just way pre, too premature to even discuss? Too premature to even discuss. And when you consider what the Republicans were willing to swallow in uh, impeachments of Trump, mm-hmm. um, and when you consider that the funding group behind the Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett appointments is basically the funding group behind the Republican Party, the idea that you'll get Republicans to vote to impeach Brett Kavanaugh under yes. essentially any circumstance, it's I think, zero. is zero. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, we have just about 20 seconds left. How powerful is the Federalist Society? You know, it's a mix. There's a part of it that's a student group. There's a part of it that's a think tank. But this operation that turnstiled three judges onto the United States Supreme Court and stopped a fourth, stopped Merrick Garland, has changed the trajectory of the country for those dark money donors who have hid behind the Judicial Crisis Network and the Federalist Society Anonymous. And we still uh, don't know who they are. Still don't know who they are or what business they had before the court. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, you are doing God's work, sir. Thank you so much for dropping by today and keep it, keep it up, Thanks, please. Thanks, Tom. A pleasure. Yeah, good talking with you. We will good be, talking with you. Thank you. We will be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program, the place where we ask, you know, is Walmart really a person? And we dare to say no. We're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Well, it looks like Brett Kavanaugh probably won't get impeached, but hey, let's find out what's actually going on here, huh? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Wanted to share with you, this This is pretty amazing, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. In central York, not York, England, York, Pennsylvania. Uh, let me give you the backstory. For This is from the Will Bunch newsletter today. I, I subscribe to it, inquirer.com. 
Will Bunch is, is telling the story of what happened, but the backstory is that a bunch of these right-wingers got all hysterical. They've been watching Fox News, Fox so-called news, and they got so hysterical about critical race theory and our white children are going to be humiliated in school and be permanently scarred for the rest of their lives thinking that they are racists or something. Uh, that they passed a, a, a school board law or regulation or whatever it is, you know, in the, in the schools here in Central York, uh, banning books, including books like a biography of Rosa Parks, a book about Martin Luther King. I mean, honestly. So here's here's what happened. This this is uh, uh, and and also the autobiography of uh, Malala. Yusufazi, you know, Malala, the young woman, and I believe from Pakistan, maybe Bangladesh, I'm pretty sure it was Pakistan, who got, who got, what, acid thrown in her face or shot in the face, something like a, some, some, you know, disfiguring attack on her. Um, the, her autobiography was banned by these right-wingers who didn't want the schools talking about the racial history of the United States. And this is a county that Donald Trump won by 62%, York County and the Central York School District. And one parent, in fact, Matt Want, uh, told a recent school board meeting, quote, I don't want my daughter growing up feeling guilty because she's white. So in response to this, five students, five, five students staged a daily protest in the school. And as the school year progressed, it went from five to 10 to 30 to 50 to 100 to 150 to 200. And pretty soon, they gave a name to their group. The uh, Panther is the school math mascot. And so they called themselves the Panther Anti-Racist Union. And they started protesting every day at the school. And then their parents started protesting, showing up at school board meetings. One of the libraries in town got took all the books that had been banned and made them available to students, um, including, uh, and, and, and in fact, one, one student this is from uh, Patricia Jackson, a late language arts teacher at Central York, uh, told Will Bunch, quote, one student pointed to a poster of Maya Angelou in the classroom wall and said, Miss Jackson, are you allowed to have that? Aren't you afraid you'll get in trouble or lose your job? Because it was a poster of a black woman. This is how far it got. Well, the school board met this week and unanimously said, enough. They restore, and this was after 200 parents and students had rallied at the school board or outside their meeting in favor of books. <laughs> it's 2021. We're having to have demonstrations in favor of books to beat back the bullies who had previously prevailed at banning books. It's mind-boggling. It's just mind-boggling. Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls here. Mark in San Clemente, California. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? How you doing, Tom? I uh, really appreciate the, the spot you just had on with uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. I listened to all of his YouTube lectures about the scheme to pack the courts, and it needs to be out there in that form because most people have never heard about it. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm 66 years old. I, I'm a teacher in high schools. I've been around the education system all my life, and I never heard about it. 
Yeah. And and it goes back to the Nixon era, mm-hmm. which we all were there. I mean, Nixon lived in San Clemente. I was driving a water truck by in the summer by his house. Oh, that's right. You're from and San Clemente. Yeah. Yeah, there was there was protesters on one side of the street saying, you know, take him down, convict him. The other people were, you know, for him. Mm-hmm. And I drove right through the thing, and they all had signs and all that. But it's never been revealed to the public, and I think that's the good part of it. And I've watched your lectures on your book and your and your series of books, which nobody has the time or the wherewithal to go down and read them. But to see it and listen to you and you lay it out and, and Sheldon laid it out to where we can understand it. And that's going to be the change. I think there's really a change coming amongst the regular people of this country. Yeah. Because you got to get the information out somehow and you guys are doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, I appreciate thank you. it. Thank you very much, Mark. And, and uh, God bless Sheldon Whitehouse. I, as I said, I think he should have been our attorney general. He is. Uh, thank you for that. He that's, is one smart you know, cookie. Yeah. He yeah. is. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Frank in Miami, Florida. Hey, Frank, what's on your mind today? Hey, pretty good, Tom. Thank you. Listen, I'm calling because of the debt ceiling. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if people know this or not, but if the debt ceiling is not raised, then those of us that receive Social Security are not going to get their Social Security. The debt ceiling has to be raised in order for us to continue to get Social Security benefits. That's correct. And, and by the way, this started in July. Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, has been moving money around since July to be able to pay the essential bills. And a lot of stuff is being left behind or put on pause. And uh, this is, A, that's not good, but it's going to reach a critical or a crisis in the next few weeks. And when it does, um, it, it, I mean, when they did this to Obama in 2011, this is the whole two Santa Clauses thing that I was ranting about on Monday. When they did this to Obama in 2011, it led to our credit rating as a nation being downgraded, which increased the cost of borrowing, which increased our, our, annual, our monthly expenses, our interest payments on the national debt, and that increased everybody's expenses for everything. It produced inflation. It, it, uh, it made it harder to borrow money. It, it softened the housing market which is why the Republicans are doing this, because there's a Democrat in the White House, and they know that if they can pull this stunt off, it will damage our economy. And people not knowing that, you know, hey, the Republicans did it through the back door indirectly, they're going to blame Biden for it. Exactly. And, and Leader Schumer and uh, Speaker Pelosi have been doing their level best uh, to try and get this done. And uh, that's exactly right. Uh, they basically want the Democrats to fail and people see that nothing's getting done, who's in charge, the Democrats, and they make it very simple. So vote us in, that is the Republicans, and then we know what's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. Right. And we're going to be worse off. Oh, they, and, they raised the debt ceiling the first three years of the Trump presidency. Every single year, without a peep, they raised the debt ceiling. And on the fourth year, they just canceled it. They just suspended it, which means yeah. that Biden now has to raise the debt ceiling not just on the money that was spent prior to now in the Biden administration, but also in the last year of the Trump administration. So it's going to look even worse. Right, exactly. And uh, frankly, I thought that they were going to try and extend it a little further out to include at least hopefully what will be two Biden administrations. Yeah, no, they're just trying to take it to December, to the end of the year, which is crazy. I mean, you know, it's it's like they should just end it. 
right? I mean, they should just outlaw it. You know, pass a law and end the debt ceiling. And they, yeah, and most countries don't have a debt ceiling, but we're one of the few that do. Yeah, it and goes it, back to World War One, and there's and it's just it, and and it was just to appease the people who didn't want to get into World War One. It was to say we're going to spend our money responsibly. Don't worry. It was crazy. Right. Frank, I got to I got to run, but thank you for the call. Anne in Montclair, New Jersey. Hey, Anne, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to share with you that I have a niece who was due to be induced yesterday. She lives in Arizona, and the hospital called her yesterday and told her not to come in. They cannot accommodate her because they are so overwhelmed with patients, and so with she COVID is sitting patients. home by the phone in frequent contact with the hospital. Um, waiting to come in to have the baby that should have been born yesterday. Oh, wow. So what are they going to do? Just wait for a normal, the beginning of a normal vaginal birth, or is there a medical issue? Oh, she just, she just hung up. I, I don't know the answer to that question, therefore. So we'll, we'll find out. But, they, you know, once again, you've got somebody who, you know, can't, can't get into the hospital because it's full of COVIDians. Is that a thing, COVIDians? Yeah, I've seen that word around, I think. Here on the Tom Hartman program, helping you win the water cooler wars if you're back to the water cooler. We are here. We have our very, it's not cool, but you know, it's just a porcelain pot, but we've got one. Jesse in Lafayette, Indiana. Hey, Jesse, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Hey, uh, you heard that Illinois is announcing media literacy for 2022 in their K through 12 classes? No, I didn't know that, like Finland does. Yeah, yeah, you, you had said about a European country a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Well, they, they've announced that, and that's pretty cool. That but is. I really hope that, that the actual things that they teach goes into way that, uh, goes into ways that the right takes over kids online sometimes, even through hand gestures and stuff. That guy, Brenton Tarrant, that killed all those Muslims in uh, Christchurch, mm -hmm. um, he didn't want to talk in court. He opted to not talk in court, but he did use the OK hand symbol, which has been now taken over as a white power right. symbol. Right. And uh, Trump himself, when he said, stand back and stand by, he uh, used that symbol, too. Right. Uh, so, Trump started uh, using that right after he became president. He started using it like a tick. And you go back and you yeah. look at videos of Trump on TV, you know, from a decade ago, and he never used that hand signal. But he, all through his presidency, he was constantly doing, you know, throwing the white power signal out there. As was the yeah, woman well, who was sitting behind Brett Kavanaugh throughout his hearings. Yeah, the alt-right online, the way that they indoctrinate kids is really vague. They'll use things like that, like the hand symbol, so that when people confront them about it, then they'll just be like, what? That just means okay. Right, right. right because the media doesn't catch up quick enough. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. Jesse, thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us. Patrick in East Lansing, you know about special counsel laws? Yes, I do. My, my professor drafted it at Georgetown Law School, Sam Dra uh, Dash. He oh, was yeah. the Watergate pro prosecutor. And Sam Irvin recommended it. And it got bipartisan, almost unanimous support when it passed in 1978. Um, and because of that, we did not have to go back to the Watergate era, which we're now in. We've, for 21 years, we've been back in the Watergate era because this law expired in 1999. In the Watergate era, 
the president could commit crimes and the attorney general could fire the person investigating them. And that's exactly what happened to Archibald Cox, who I took on law with. Um, And he was fired because the president's lawyer, the attorney general, who should define his mission as the public trust and stopping crimes by the president's men, defined his job instead as protecting Richard Nixon. Now, he went to prison. Detroit guy went to prison. So Janet Reno, testifying to renew the law, said, there's an inherent conflict of interest. We need these special counsels. So the law was renewed in, in, um, seven, in 79, 81, 83, 84. It was renewed in 94. But Janet Reno is the only attorney general to support the law. And she said, if you don't have a law like this, you have a conflict of interest, and crimes will be committed and go unprosecuted by the president. You have an uncontrolled executive. And that's exactly what we've had since 1999. Before 99, we had 12 independent counsels. And what did they find? The first one went after Ed Meese for crime. Right. So this is no longer the law, Patrick. Is that the bottom line? No longer the law. And the special counsels have less power now than they did under the Watergate era. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for that uh, history and law lesson. I I truly appreciate it. Clearly, we have some work to do. Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky, what's on your mind today? Oh, Tom, I just don't like the way they treat Biden. I mean, a guy comes up with some good ideas, or at least something gets the country moving, mm-hmm. and Republicans back out. You know, they just they checked out for lunch. Right. They ain't coming back. Right. I, if, if those people in those districts vote those people back in, they are they are to take a break, really. Yeah, uh, politics and just leave it alone. Well, you know, earlier, uh, who is the call f- caller from Harlem? I'm blanking on his name. I, you know, he's a regular caller. My apologies, but you know, he he was saying, uh, you know, you're not even going to have, uh, you know, red states are going to flip blue in the next election because the Republicans so don't have anything to offer. I think the Republicans still do have something to offer. They have white supremacy to offer to the roughly 70% of American voters who are white and uh, probably half of them who consider themselves white supremacists. And they have misogyny. You know, the, the, you know we're going to control women. We're going to put them back in their place. They've got that to offer to people of all races, men of all races, who think that women should be their very own little... Uh, play toys or whatever, they're, you know, they're vassals, not to mention they're vessels if we're talking about pregnancy. And I wouldn't underestimate the power of those two things, Corky. I have a hard time with that, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah, we definitely will. I'll Thanks. call you a day after the midterms. Yeah, thank you, Corky. Amen. Marilyn in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Marilyn, what's on your mind today? Um, um, I'm just calling um, to give a shout out to the librarians. They stand in the line between propaganda and the death of knowledge and a vibrant society. I don't think enough can be said about their bravery in the face of people who are trying to ban knowledge, ban books. Remember when they stood up to the uh, to Homeland Security during the, the Bush administration when, when he was trying to get libraries to report people who were checking out books about Islam? Did indeed. I do remember. And I was in, I lived in a little town in Iowa then. 
and um, shortly thereafter, um, and our, the librarian was incensed. Her name was Mary. God bless her. God is bless her. She also um, was up against both the Catholic faction and the Lutheran faction in that little town who were pressuring her, demanding that she remove all Harry Potter books from the library. Oh, jeez. And uh, my son... My son is 30 now. Um, as you might know, he's in the military. And my, my granddaughters are now reading the Harry Potter books. But she, I said, what did you do, Mary? I mean, how, how did you react to that? And she said, I bought more Harry Potter books. You know, God ah. bless them. Every last one of them. Yeah. Uh, when, when your society's librarians are the last wall of resistance, or one of the, actually one of the first walls of resistance, against uh, neo-fascism, yeah, yeah. then you know that you've got a society that's in real crisis, and that's where we're at. Marilyn, thank you. Thanks for the call. Amen. I'm, I'm totally with you. And thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is A Woman of No Importance, The Untold Story of the American Spy Who Helped Win World War II by Sonia Purnell. This is from the prologue. France was falling. Burned out cars, once strapped high with treasured possessions, were nosed crazily into ditches. Their beloved cargoes of dolls, clocks, and mirrors lay smashed around them and along mile upon mile of unfriendly road. Their owners, young and old, sprawled across the hot dust and were groaning or already silent. Yet the hordes just kept streaming past them, a never-ending line of hunger and exhaustion, too fearful to stop for days on end. Ten million women, children, and old men were on the move, all fleeing Hitler's ranks, pouring across the border from the east and the north. Entire cities had uprooted themselves in a futile bid to escape the Nazi blitzkrieg that threatened to engulf them. The fevered talk was of German soldiers stripped to the waist in jubilation at the ease of their conquest. The air was thick with smoke and the stench of the dead. The babies had no milk and the aged fell where they stood. The hordes drawing overladen old farm carts sagged and snarled in their sweat-drenched agony. The French heat wave of May 1940 was witness to this, the largest refugee exodus of all time. Day after day, a solitary moving vehicle weaved its way through the crowd with a striking young woman at the wheel. Private Virginia Hall often ran low on fuel and medicines, but still pressed on in her French army ambulance toward the advancing enemy. She persevered even when the German Strukas came screaming down to drop 110-pound bombs onto the convoys all around her, torching the cars and cratering the roads. Even when fire planes swept over the treetops to machine gun the ditches where women and children were trying to take cover from the carnage. Even though French soldiers were deserting their units, abandoning their weapons and running away, some in their tanks. Even when her left hip was shot with pain from continually pressing down on the clutch with her prosthetic foot. Now at the age of 34, her mission marked the turning point after years of cruel rejection. For her own sake, as much as for the casualties she was picking up from the battlefields and ferrying to the hospital, she could not fail again. There were many reasons why she was willingly jeopardizing her life far from home in aid of a foreign country when millions of others were giving up. Perhaps foremost among them was that it had been so long since she had felt so thrillingly alive. Disgusted with the cowardice of the deserters, she could not understand why they would not continue the fight. But then she had little to lose. 
The French still remembered sacrificing a third of their young menfolk to the Great War, and a nation of widows and orphans were in no mood for more bloodshed. Virginia, though, intended to go on the road, wherever the battle took her. She was prepared to take whatever risks, face down, any dangers. Total war against the Third Reich might perversely offer her one last hope of personal peace. Yet even this was as nothing compared with what was to come in a life that drew out into a Homeric tale of adventure, action, and seemingly unfathomable courage. Virginia Hall's service in the France of summer 1940 was merely an apprenticeship for a near-suicide mission against the tyranny of the Nazis and their puppeteers in France. She helped to pioneer a daredevil role in espionage, sabotage, and subversion behind enemy lines in an era where women barely featured in the prism of heroism when their part in combat was confined to the supportive and the palliative, when they were just expected to look nice and act obedient and let the men do the heavy lifting. When disabled women or men <clears throat> were confined to staying at home and leading off in narrow, unsatisfying lives. The fact that a young woman who had lost her leg in tragic circumstances broke through the tightest constrictions and overcame prejudice and even hostility to help the Allies win the Second World War is astonishing. That a female guerrilla leader of her stature remains so little known to this day is incredible. Yet that is perhaps how Virginia would have wanted it. She operated in the shadows, and that was where she was happiest, even to her closest allies in France. She seemed to have no home or family or regiment, merely a burning desire to defeat the Nazis. They knew neither her real name nor her nationality, nor how she had arrived in their midst. Constantly changing in looks and demeanor, surfacing without notice across whole swaths of France, only to disappear again as suddenly, she remained an enigma throughout the war, and in some ways after it, too. Even now, tracing her story has involved three solid years of detective work, taking me from the National Archives in London, the resistance files in Lyon, and the parachute drop zones in the Haute-Leur, to the judicial dossiers of Paris and even the white marble corridors of CIA headquarters at Langley. My search led me through nine levels of security clearance into the heart of today's world of American espionage. I have discussed the pressures of operating in enemy territory with a former member of Britain's special services and ex-intelligence officers from both sides of the Atlantic. I've tracked down files that were missing and discovered that others remain mysteriously lost or unaccounted for. I have spent days drawing diagrams matching dozens of code names with scores of her missions, months hunting for remaining extracts of these strange disappeared papers, years digging out forgotten documents and memoirs. The book, A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Right now, Professor Richard Wolff is with us, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also now available as an e-book. Uh, the website's rdwolf with two fs.com and democracyatwork.info. You can tweet him at profwolf, as in Professor Wolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. And Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. This this Chinese property group, Evergrande, uh, was blamed for yesterday's stock market blip, along with the the news that the Republicans are going to refuse to try to raise the debt ceiling. This is all over the international financial news. It's all over the Financial Times, and I'm guessing most Americans have no idea what's going on, what this company is why a company in China might move international markets, what they're up to, and what it might portend for the future. Can you fill us in? Sure. Uh, Evergrande is one of the biggest uh, companies in China. It is a real estate developer. At least that's what we would call it in this country. Uh, They build housing blocks. They build whole communities. Um, Like real estate dealers everywhere in the world, they're highly leveraged. What that means is they borrow huge amounts of money, uh, and they do that from syndicates of banks. So what you have is a large number of banks, both Chinese and non-Chinese, that is, banks in London and New York and Paris and so on, providing the various portions of the money lent to this builder to go ahead and build uh, apartments. And what happened was, when you have the kind of debts it does, which are in the hundreds of billions of dollars, because China is a huge country, and they are building like there's no tomorrow, as they have been for decades, uh, we're talking about an enormous amount of money, and they have to pay interest on that enormous amount of money, and they have to pay back portions of the principal. And there was a payment due, uh, if I understand the details, yesterday. Uh, Some of the the debt they owe is to Chinese lenders, that's called domestic debt, and the other one is is owed to foreigners, uh, U.S. and other bankers, insurance companies, and whoever lends to them. They were There were rumors that they would not be able uh, to make the money needed to pay off their domestic debts, which were due yesterday. Up until the last minute, these rumors swirled. The company did not deny it. The Chinese government in Beijing uh, was mum about it. And so the rumors swirled because the whole world knows that much of the development in China is fueled by borrowing and that therefore there's always a risk that the borrowers have overestimated what they can do and will find themselves in a pickle and unable uh, to cover their debt. 
So there's lots of speculation been going on for decades that the Chinese will at this moment or that moment uh, fail, that they will be unable to pay back their debts, that will plunge their banks into all kinds of difficulty, that will plunge foreigners. And so what you saw in the build-up to yesterday was anxiety in stock markets around the world, including here in New York, uh, when people guesstimated uh, whether or not they would fail to meet the payment and what the ripple effects of that would be. As has happened over and over again in the last 25 years, the rumors proved to be, I'll be polite here, wildly excessive. They made the domestic part of their payments yesterday. We don't know much, many details, but the payment was announced by both uh, the company in question, Evergrande, and by some of its domestic lenders. And now the next question is, can they meet the foreign uh, debt payment? It's due, I think, in a week or so. Uh, and again, you'll see some swirling rumors. But my advice, if that's where you're going with your question, Tom, is not to get excited about this. The Chinese are now so important a player that if one of their companies looks like it might not pay its debts, it's global financial news. Nothing announces the importance of the People's Republic of China onto the world scene like this one does. And number two, the Chinese government, acutely aware that it is now the number two economic powerhouse in the world, uh, number two to the United States, and catching up with each passing week, no way are they going to permit anything to disrupt their arrival on the world scene as the ascending global economic power, which they clearly are. So you put all this together, and my guess is this is a tempest in a teapot. It will make a lot of noise, but mostly what you're seeing is the kind of up and down in the markets that we should have become familiar with in the West, uh, China joining the West in terms of its economic importance has these kinds of bumps along the way. Uh, if anything, their government is in more active involvement in the economy than here, and so they will find ways, both public and private, both publicly announced and privately arranged, to get through this crisis, thereby impressing the whole world with how well they have their newfound power under control. Which, which raises the question, how did a, uh, a theoretically communist country end up with a uh, nearly laissez-faire capitalist economy? Well, they don't really have that, Tom. They have a mixture. Uh, they, if, if ever the term mixed economy was applicable, it is to China. Uh, let me explain. If you take one kind of quote-unquote socialism, uh, the, the Scandinavian or the Western European, what you have is private enterprise owned and operated by private individual capitalists or, or shareholders in the corporate form with the government coming in with lots of controls and regulations. They call that 
socialism or democratic socialism or socialist democracy. At the other end of the range of these mixed economies, you have the Soviet Union. There, the government took over the ownership and operation, at least in industry, uh, leaving the private sector quite small and limited to agricultural uh, individual plots. What China did is start out being rather like the Soviet Union, and then when Mao passed, shifting over to occupy a place you might say is midway between the Soviet model, where the government owns and operates, and the Scandinavian model, where the government merely intervenes and regulates, but leaves the ownership and operation in private hands. What China is, is literally a mixture of those two. All of that under the regulatory control of the state and the Communist Party of China. What the Chinese claim, and by the way, they call this socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is another way of saying it isn't the Scandinavian and it isn't the Soviet. What they believe is they've found the model of, the, of a society that can, in a way, get the best of both of these uh, arrangements by carefully dividing the economy, giving private enterprise the places where it excels, giving government owned and operate the sectors where that excels, and keeping the whole thing under the control of a central authority so that when they have something that's really national in scope, they can mobilize both private and public resources to meet the challenge. And let me tell you, the world is taking a lot of notice because of COVID. I mean, let's get clear. The Chinese have had 6,000 deaths from COVID. That's 1% of the deaths from COVID in the United States. And China has four times the population uh, of our country. This is an achievement that may not be a big news item in the United States, but I can assure you, and I read a lot of foreign newspapers, it is number one piece of news as the whole world tries to understand why was it possible for this poor country, which China was and in many ways still is, how was it possible for them to organize a system able to demonstrate that kind of prowess? And, and what role does authoritarianism play in this? I mean, shouldn't it be unnecessary for them to crack down on Hong Kong's democracy movement, for example, and, and, and play all these authoritarian? Is that just about keeping the, the corrupt rulers in power, or is that absolutely necessary for this economic system? My guess it's a mixture of both. Uh, in other words, on the one hand, they have hit upon uh, a system, I mean, let me give you a couple more statistics. For the last 25 years, their annual GDP growth has been between 6 and 9%. At, over the same 25 years, the annual GDP growth here in the United States has been between 2 and 3%. They're growing at three times the rate of the United States. Over the same period of time, the real wages of the average worker in China has quadrupled, whereas the real wage in the United States has stagnated. Hasn't gone down, but hasn't gone up either. I mean, these are achievements 
that would that make China the envy of literally every other country in the world, and certainly every country in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and and so on. And so they looking at a model that is working for them beyond what I suspect any of them foresaw as possible. But will you have, if you give the government the regulation power that it has, will you have a, examples of overstepping that power, using it where it isn't necessary, where it is even uh, politically counterproductive? I think you have those examples. I don't know enough about Hong Kong or the Uyghurs and so on to be sure that that's what's going on, but it wouldn't surprise me. I think one of the great critiques of uh, 20th century uh, socialism has been the power of the government, and I know that that's being debated inside China for sure as we speak. Fascinating stuff. I always learn something. Thank you so much, Professor Richard Wolf. Great talking with you. My Thank pleasure, you. Tom. Thank you. And be sure to check out his new book, The System Is The Sickness Is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. It's also now available as an ebook. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sprouse, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.